Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. As I turn 26 this week and celebrate uh, another wonderful trip around the sun, I think it's only fitting that our 62nd episode is released. 62 flipped, 26. A conspiracy? Maybe. <laughs> Lucky coincidence? Uh, definitely. But in today's episode, I have the honors to sit down and have a hootin', 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 who uses that? Of a conversation with Rasha Maleki, host of the foodie podcast Spoon Mob, to talk about some pressing issues related to the world of food, including the ethical dilemma of using online ordering apps, Anthony Bourdain's legacy and his influence on the, the traveling food genre, and the big question of, do we need to reduce our meat consumption to save our earth is biting taking away our meat and a question i want to pass along to you listener you can send those answers to our email watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com or comment on this episode's post on our instagram at watercoolertalkpod what are your thoughts in regards to delivery apps like uber eats or grubhub or the the many other options that are available do you use them and if so how often if you don't why? You know, I, I've never been a big proponent of using delivery apps unless it's pizza, because like that's 90% of the experience with pizzas having to be delivered. But I've also always worked in kitchens per se. I guess that's not <laughs> entirely true. It's always been food trucks, but I've been uh, able to kind of see the decision process of deciding if a restaurant or a, a truck in my case should be a part of that zeitgeist. And it makes sense for larger food places like McDonald's or a popular chain restaurant like, say, Red Lobster to contribute to that industry because it becomes the cost of doing business, aka it's free advertising for these businesses. So as always, as always, as we talk about many times in this episode, when you can, support your local small businesses. Also, don't listen to those... <laughs> BuzzFeed or trendy YouTubers who say, you know what, you're a piece of right side baloney if you happen to go to Starbucks or Taco Bell. Create a, a ecosystem that is convenient for you. But, 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 there's always a but. Always be pushing the boundaries of that ecosystem you've created for yourself by supporting your community. Not only is it a beneficial factor in platforming communities to raise the quality of life, but it's just straight up much better for the environment. You know, the evidence is stacked up 20 feet tall and 200 feet deep that climate change isn't just this Al Gore conspiracy. <laughs> and if switching how we interact with our community helps create better diets and more healthy individuals because we are eating better food with better ingredients, then the the Rube Goldberg machine of life will end up creating a healthier earth. As our world population continues to grow and grow and grow, and you know, if you're someone like myself who believes that we'll never get past 11 billion individuals, we will continue to expand not just to give humans space to develop and live, but we also need space for agriculture, for husbandry. And if we continue to run down this dangerous, unhealthy street like we've been doing for so many years, a, a lot of people are going to get hurt. Much, much more dangerous zoonic diseases are coming and we'll eventually get to that point of no return. As I always say, it's important to start having these conversations before it is too late. We are directly responsible for our future. We can hold those accountable that need to be held accountable, and we can hold ourselves accountable. And of course, to beautifully transition to holding myself accountable, this episode of Water Cooler Talk might sound a bit different 
than the 61 episodes that came before. The next handful of episodes will have a brand new take on corrections. You could call them in the moment corrections, something I've been, uh, Something I've become much more aware of as I've perused through the hundreds and hundreds of news articles is that often corrections and mistakes are hidden. If you read a misinformed news article on Monday and they don't correct it until Friday, what are the chances of you A, knowing that a correction happened and B, actually returning to that article to read the correction? By then, that you know, misinformation has already been spread throughout the week. A a great example is the Fox News blunder with saying Biden wants to ban red meat. And I've known this is the cross left-leaning and right-leaning news platform. It just so happened that everything corresponded with Fox News, or maybe just another lucky coincidence. And even though we still have a relatively uh, small audience compared to a giant like Fox News or other major news platforms like CNN, I want to try to do things right from day one. I love it when y'all do more information on a topic that's covered on the show, but I also want to be that reliable source of information to you, a source that you don't have to second guess. Of course, there's going to be times when I'm not 100% perfect and I'll miss something and I'll still need your help in calling it out, but my goal for the show is to be 99% accurate in every episode. And so to try and reach that goal, in the moment corrections are here. Throughout the episode, if a fact is shared that is incorrect, if more information needs to be added, if I can't think of the name of that actor from that obscure movie I rented from Blockbuster back in the day, you'll hear this sound, followed by whatever information is needed to help us reach that reliability goal. I know, there are a few of you out there who really enjoyed the correction corner uh, and will be disappointed, but give this a try. Let me know if you enjoy the new changes or any tweaks that may be needed. Maybe you don't like the sound. Or maybe it becomes one of those ideas that sounded much, much better in the old noggin. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk, episode 62, titled Meatless Meat, with Ray Shemalecki. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real. All right, Ray, are you ready to jump into our first story? Let's just jump right into it. Yeah, let's do it. This is from CBC News, British Columbia, December 30th, 2020. Complaints about food delivery, number one, on annual list of nuisance 911 calls. The presence of COVID-19 gave a different twist to some 911 calls this year in Canada. Food delivery complaints and questions about lockdown topped ECOM, which is British Columbia's emergency communication operation, annual list of the worst reasons people called. Inquiries about the legality of owning a trampoline, calls about bank cards stuck in ATM machines, planning to buy a second-hand mattress, confirming the time of day these are actually calls they receive, reporting a neighbor smoking in restricted areas also made the annual list of ridiculous calls. Ecom releases their annual list of nuisance callers in an effort to remind the public that 911 should only be dialed in an emergency. Ecom dispatcher Megan McCath stated, Every moment we spend responding to general questions, concerns, or complaints takes away from our priority, helping people who need help right away. Ecom handled more than 1.7 million 911 calls throughout 2020. The past few years have averaged just below 1.5 million calls and is the first point of contact for 99% of 911 calls originating from British Columbia's concerned citizens in need of police, fire, or medical. I think Vancouver is the the big uh, city there in British Columbia. In comparison to South Carolina and Minnesota, who both have a similar population to British Columbia, those states together average just under 4 million 911 calls a year. So no surprise here, but the U.S. 
calls 911 a lot. <laughs> According to recently released 2020 data from food delivery apps in the US, UK, and Canada, the amount of users increased by almost 20% in 2020. Most years see a modest 8% increase. And a fun fact for our trivia fans out there, Pizza Hut launched the first online ordering system in 1994. So Ray, with your podcast, Spoon Mob, you, you take the time to sit down, talk to uh, uh, these chefs and cooks about their journey to get to where they are. In those talks, have you ever talked about the uh, the changing of technology in the restaurant industry? Yeah, a little bit. So there was one chef that I had on up in uh, Cleveland, uh, Matthew Spinner, and he runs just kind of, it used to be a, like a fine dining restaurant and now it's more of just kind of a casual bar eatery. But he was messaging with somebody he knew at Grubhub and they wanted to get him on, you know, their app. And he was, you know, they were doing their own delivery and contactless pickup and stuff. He was like, all right, you know, we'll give it a try. Or or they were in negotiations. I can't remember the full story. And then they just signed him up for the app and like, they just made it all go live, like without his permission. And so, I mean, he basically, you know, shut all that down, but that's been a common theme here in America with all these different delivery apps, you know, whether it's Grubhub or Uber Eats or there's a few places out. If you look, if you look up Kin Cow, the San Francisco, they were kind of the main ones that had this problem. It's a Michelin star Thai restaurant and they were just being assigned to these delivery apps. They never registered. They never converted to doing delivery or anything like that. And what happens is all these delivery apps, they're all in just a war with each other for users. Do you, do you know if these delivery apps are signing up these restaurants or is it like user or users, fans of these restaurants signing them up? So what they're doing is these companies, they have people that are within these companies, they go online, they find these different restaurants and they just create an account. They just put them on their platform. Their whole goal is to get as many restaurants on their platform as possible. And they're pulling like old menus from like Instagram and stuff like that. So then these restaurants have these people that show up and are like, yeah, I'm here to pick up, you know, this order for carry or something. And the restaurant's like, what are you talking about? Like we don't do to go food. Mm -hmm. So they, the app cancels the order. And then the user who made the order gets all upset at the restaurant. They're like, oh, they canceled my order. And it's like, no, they they didn't even do to-go food to begin with. It's a pretty messed up situation. I think California actually just passed a law that they're not allowed to do that anymore. You can't just put somebody on your app without their permission. The Fair Food Delivery Act was signed into law on September 24th. 2020. Like you actually have to have a signed formal contract. An agreement with the restaurant or the food, the food location. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I can see Grubhub being like, we have 150 million restaurants and Uber Eats is like, oh, we only have 120. So there is like a market share there that these apps are like, we need more restaurants because it looks better at the end of the year. Yeah. And, and look, I don't use delivery apps. I recommend to people that they don't. Uh, they take such a big profit out of the the restaurants themselves yes. and the margins are so small, like they're taking up to 30%. Restaurants that use their own delivery vehicles have a 15% commission rate on average. Restaurants that use delivery apps completely have a commission rate ranging from 15 to 30%. A lot of cities cap those fees at like 10 to 15% during the pandemic, but a lot of those fee- those caps are going to be expiring. So they're going to go back up to taking like a third of the profit out of a delivery order. Just if the restaurant does delivery, just go and pick it up yourself. Um, some restaurants have their own delivery team. That might be something that we see more and more, you know, of people hiring, but they're all having problems with hiring people right now. Just if they do to go ordering and you want to 
pick it up to go, like just, just make the drive and pick it up yourself because their margins are so slim. Um, it's not worth it. And the other thing that just blows my mind and nobody talks about this enough. They all say that all these restaurant delivery companies, DoorDash, whatever, they're tech companies, right? But none of them actually make any money. Yes. yes. They're all yes. millions and billions yes. of dollars in the hole. Uber ended up losing $6.7 billion in 2020, but their company says they expect to make their first profit sometime in 2021. None of them have ever turned a profit for a quarter. They've never turned a profit. It's all, we have all the, you know, we generated $680 million in revenue. It's like, yeah, but you still lost like $200 million for the quarter. Like, Yeah, and, and their entire goal at the end is to get federal funding to hopefully, you know, they're spending millions and millions of dollars to hopefully in, you know, five, 10 years be so, be such a big part of our society that the government's like, we have to fund these people and kind of quote unquote, save them. Yeah. And it's basically, and who knows how that gets passed over to like the taxpayer and stuff like that. Like, are are we all going to have to subsidize that? Like, is it going to be basically like a sports stadium? Like where we get stuck subsidizing that, and we don't really have a choice. <laughs> but no, like, uh, back to the apps and the technology. I like the fact that you mentioned. You know, it's a lot better for yourself and the restaurant if you just pick up to go just directly from them rather than an app because it, it does support the restaurant and you create a better relationship with your local restaurant because that is a lot of people. And we can talk more about this when it comes to alternative meats later, a little later on. But a lot of people don't always realize the impact they have by doing something easier. It's a lot easier to order food on Grubhub or StubHub or Uber Eats or I don't I don't know all of them, but obviously StubHub is a online ticketing app and not a food delivery app. It's a lot easier, but in the long term, it's cheaper for you as a consumer and also better for these restaurants. But in that short-term viewpoint, people don't always see that. They're like, it's 10 p.m. on a, a Friday night. I just want some tacos from Taco Bell. You know, I'm just going to order it on Uber Eats. Yeah, and look, I'm not advocate if it's, you know, if you've had a few drinks and you want to order some food, like, <laughs> I'm not advocating for you to get your car behind the wheel and, and do that. But if, but if you're uh, just ordering, like, dinner or whatever, you know, you have to remember <sighs> – it's such a actually more complex issue than people really probably understand. So, so restaurants, their margins are super small. Their profit margins probably on average is somewhere between two and maybe 5%. Best case scenario, they get up to eight, maybe nine. That's that profit is after, you know, they pay all their workers and everything, but there's so many people that are attached to the restaurant industry just from working standpoint too, as well. So, you know, the more money that you can put back into a restaurant, the more money that they'll be able to have to give to their employees, whether it's healthcare or benefits, some places don't offer that. Some places do. It just kind of depends on on who's running the restaurant. Corporate chains is, you know, I don't really recommend corporate chains just mainly because of the quality too hey, as if, well. if you want to talk how horrible Applebee's is, I will talk with you about that <laughs> for the rest of the hour. I haven't, I haven't been to an Applebee's in a long time. But so, I mean, you know, you want to find, if you can, even if you have to pay, you know, maybe it's a... An extra, you know, couple bucks or whatever, but I recommend, you know, local owned kind of chef driven restaurants because they also get all their ingredients from local farms too as well. So mm-hmm. one problem a lot of farms were having during the pandemic is all these restaurants were closed. That doesn't mean you can stop growing stuff. Like if you have greenhouses, you still have tomatoes, you still have, you know, squash, whatever. So they had all this leftover ingredients and they're like, well, what do we do with it? Some restaurants were luckily, you know, still 
able to kind of operate and kind of almost take advantage of that in a way where they're like, yeah, just give us everything. Like a guy, I just, um, an episode that we just came out with, he runs, uh, he's the chef at the Cap Roots in Nashville. If you're curious about that episode of Spoon Mob, it is episode 131 with Brian Baxter. You know, he needed, you know, maybe like five pounds of something. And the farm that he was dealing with was like, well, we have like 25 pounds of that. And he's like, cool, just give me all of it. And they would take it and they would ferment it. And then, you know, now that they're getting into summer, it's like, okay, well, what do we do with all these jars? They had like over 70 jars of things like fermenting. And it's not a big restaurant. They don't have a whole lot of space either. So, so they were taking all that and they were going to reduce it down to syrups that they can use and other stuff too. So so it's it's trying to make sure that you don't have a bunch of food waste too as well, that these restaurants stay open. So, you know, the supply chain keeps moving and we're not just, you know, throwing a bunch of food out too as well that could have been used for something. Mm-hmm. And then you figure if people are delivering your food too as well, yes, those people do need to make a living. Um, they could actually also, instead of doing delivery for Uber Eats, they could just go work at a restaurant too as well. That's another avenue because there is a, a rapid hiring movement because all these restaurants are reopening and they need people. You know, delivery driving, then you have, you know, they're all gas-powered cars. So how much of that is going into the atmosphere, pollution and all that stuff too as well. And you could say, yeah, well, if I have to drive to the restaurant, like I'm using my car too as well. But that delivery driver's that's one less trip that they have to make, you know, and you can kind of offset some of it, you know, maybe that's a wash at the end of the day. But it's just you you got to support the local people because if if all that stuff fails then all you're left behind with is these giant chains they don't care they dump a bunch of you know sugar and a whole bunch of other additives and stuff into their food mm-hmm. to keep the cost down so that way the stuff lasts way longer so they can use it too as well so and, and also just to go food just doesn't taste as good like when you're eating <laughs> at a restaurant it tastes way yeah, better definitely and then you don't have to worry about the delivery driver getting lost and like can't find your door or whatever depending on your apartment complex like stuff like that yeah. so yeah i definitely agree with your point and it's one of those things where you know i don't want to be a hypocrite and say you know don't go after something that's as cheap as possible because you have to afford other things but i'm always in the always in the uh, the basketball court the court of supporting local as much as possible because like you said if we don't then we just turn into wally and two three corporations own everything and they control us as humans and i don't want that i don't want walmart on every corner in america i th- i don't think anybody has like you know it gets into all this other stuff and it's like you know there's a, a certain part of the population that just gets super outraged about a lot of stuff and it's just nobody's saying capitalism's bad nobody's yeah. saying that Big corporations shouldn't exist, Mm -hmm. but we all just want to have choice, the ability to choose. I want as many possibilities that I can choose from as possible instead of there. I want a free market. I want the free market. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, you know, your Applebee's, they can exist. And if there's people that want to go there (laughs) and for whatever reason, that's fine. (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it, but You know, we also want to be able to have, you know, the chef owned restaurants or the small little restaurant groups that have three or four different, you know, restaurants in a city or or whatever. And, you know, you want to be able to go to those places, too, because in general, they do it better. They do it right. They push kind of the boundaries of of food and everything. A lot of them are more conscious about the environment. Mm -hmm. They're usually kind of at the forefront of what we should be doing as a larger society obviously it takes a lot longer to implement that stuff through government red tape and and everything like that but yeah i mean just support your local restaurant like there's so much more that goes into it that most people just don't understand and like you said if if 
it's just you have to operate under whatever is the low cost food that I can get right now because you're out of work or whatever. That's fine. But whenever you get to a point where you can afford to spend a couple extra bucks, maybe to support a local restaurant, you know, try and do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Well, Ray, I want to officially welcome you to a, a water cooler talk. You're the host of Spoon Mob, a foodie focused podcast and website that covers the best restaurants, chefs and foods from across the nation Midwest right now because you're in Ohio, I believe. But I did notice a Vancouver chef in the mix. So you're starting to get more international. So I'm excited about that. Uh, and, and of course, a sprinkle here and there of revealing old Anthony Bourdain parts unknown episodes. So Ray, welcome to water cooler talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely been listening to a bunch of your episodes. I think you've been doing it for what like 2018 i think at least Maybe 2017 okay, was uh the the official start but yeah i've been like i was talking before the show i've been in the podcast industry for a, a long time it's definitely cool to connect with you know other people that are doing podcasts in the industry and and just kind of learn just different styles and it's like oh can i implement that into what i'm doing does that work you know stuff like that you just get all these ideas that you can just pull from everybody else and it's a it's a pretty helpful community too as well and it, you know, there's nobody who's really, I don't know, I just don't think there's a whole lot of like cutthroat people. It's kind of like, hey. Yeah, when, when you get when you get to like the real podcast, quote, podcast people, not just these celebrities that are getting into the space because they can make money doing it. Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly supportive community. You find, you know, very interesting people. And, you know, as we were talking about it, it's a little different once you get on a mic. You know, it's easy to talk to your friends about for example, food. But once you get on a mic to talk about food, it's a whole other ball game. And it's nice to be able to connect with other podcasters that feel comfortable on a mic. I mean, I've had fantastic conversations with people who aren't in the public space, but it is always a little easier, you know, on my end to talk to someone who's in the public space or who has, you know, explored that public space because they understand, you know, the needs that the needs that are needed, horrible sentence there, but the needs that are needed to, you know, create good, good content that actually is impactful in the world and actually says something is meaningful. And it's not just, you know, a person talking to a mic because they want to hear themselves talk. You learn just a lot of different stuff from a lot of people. If you just have just open conversations about just kind of, you know, whatever, even if it's a specific topic and and stuff like that, at least in the community. So it's been cool to be a part of so far, for sure. With food, I think it's important. I'm glad you covered some Anthony Bourdain episodes. I think it's important to discuss the impact Anthony Bourdain had on the culinary world, you know, it might have just been because my health, uh, my high school health teacher was tired. Uh, I just felt like she was so tired of having to teach us. But we watched a lot of no reservation episodes, which was previous to um, Parts Unknown. No reservations ran from 2005 to 2012. Parts Unknown ran from 2013 to 2018. And that show really helped me realize the grand sense of the world. For example, here in the US, you know, we're on the, the right course with COVID finally. But in India, they're now facing the highest of highs and the worst of worst and running out of oxygen. You know, Anthony Bourdain was one of those people with no reservations, with parts unknown, that really helped me see that the world is bigger than just my town, my state, my country. And I love that aspect of him using food, something we all partake in, we all need to eat, to find that connection point. If you bring two people to the table and you find a connection point, you know, like we're talking about, if you find two people that just want to talk and you find that connection point, both those people, regardless of what they believe in, are going to walk away from that table better off. And you're allowed to look at these shows and what he did for the travel cuisine quote genre as, as just a guy traveling in the world and eating mostly great food. 
But I think specifically to Anthony Bourdain, that would be a kind of disservice to his legacy. Yeah, I mean, he's been gone for, you know, a couple years and by no means was he a perfect person, nor did he claim to ever be a, a perfect person, which is also kind of refreshing. I mean, he was never a big Instagram user. Mm-hmm. I mean, his Instagram page is still up. You can go through it, but it's not like there's not any real photos that are super you know, framed well or lighting or anything. It's pretty like raw. And there's nobody else really like him. You know, there's a handful of food shows out there. You know, they all kind of try and take little bits and pieces, I think. It's just, it's really tough to kind of live up to the level. And I'm not trying to say like everybody who's doing a food show on TV or anything is, is trying to aspire to that level or or whatever. But, but when that's the gold, the gold standard. That's the gold standard of food and travel shows. Yeah. and. And No Reservations was a little bit more gimmicky because it was on the Travel Channel. Yes. And the Travel Channel is, I don't know what it is now, but I know back then it was run by whoever owned it. They were very religious. The company that owned the Travel Channel at the time was Scripps Network Interactive. So there was stuff that he wasn't able to do. There was stuff that they didn't want on there. And there was always usually one segment within those shows that's kind of like a producer segment yeah. like the producer's like hey we got to do this because it fits with the brand of the travel channel of yeah like, like looking back i remember i you know i don't remember the exact details but i remember it was very school appropriate content yeah you know the thing that we noticed when we started just kind of doing the podcast about him when he went to the from no reservations to parts unknown with cnn mm-hmm. he got access to like a whole bunch of stuff that he didn't have like the first episode he goes to myanmar he's like one of the first journalists with a with a video camera in there after people were allowed in there from you know the outside and obviously Myanmar's going through a lot of the stuff that they already went through again with the military coup and, yes. and all that stuff he went there he went to iran uh, which you wouldn't be able to do today but CNN had these journalism credentials that backed him. So he was able to get to these places. The one episode, which is still one of my favorites, even though it really doesn't have anything to do with food, is the Congo episode when he goes kind of halfway down the Congo River. The episode of Parts Unknown mentioned by Ray is from season one, episode eight. And that whole thing, he had been trying to do that trip for it had to be almost 10 years. I think he talks about it on the episode that he went on like the Joe Rogan podcast way back when. The Joe Rogan episode with Anthony Bourdain where he mentions the Congo is episode 138 of the Joe Rogan experience. That he would never get approval. Every time he tried to do it, it would just be there's the militia, there's too many militias because there's like 70 different militias that are all trying to control this territory. Yeah. And different national resources, border crossings, all that stuff. So it's super interesting, but he just was never able to do it. But finally, whatever power that CNN has with their kind of worldwide reach, they were able to get approval and he was able to get and go do it. And it was kind of like a lifelong kind of dream for him. So that episode is always really cool, even though it has nothing to do with food. Like the only food scene I think is there's one in the beginning and then there's a when they are like trying to skin chickens on a boat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like That's about it. <laughs> no, but. but I think it, go, it goes to my point. It's like he was able to explore throughout his career, you know, when he got these opportunities with Travel Channel and with CNN, he was able to explore these regions, you know, more so with CNN that, you know, we don't always see in everyday life. We have it very good here in the U.S. A lot of people don't realize that anybody who calls the U.S. a third world country is a freaking idiot. There's just so much more to the world. And that's what he provided is that outside perspective of, 
hey, yeah, it's, you know, life is good here in the US or life is good in, you know, most parts of Europe, but that's just a small fraction of the world. Yeah. I mean, you get into, you know, the third world country thing. It's like we have electricity, even though our electric grid might not be perfect, but pretty much everybody has access to electricity, plumbing, <laughs> running water. Well, that's, and that's one of the things, you, you know, know, we literally, you know, wash down our, what comes out of our body with clean water. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, the more you travel abroad to different countries, even if it's just you go to Canada, you just experience just different stuff that it makes you kind of appreciate not just what you have or your environment that you live in too, and, but you kind of understand more what everybody else's kind of setup is too as well. Like it's way different if you go anywhere in Asia, even Singapore, which is, you know, their national language is English and it's super easy to get around. You can't have Uber or Lyft there. The the government owns basically the taxi system. So everything is driven by the taxi system. But they have a fantastic subway system. Now the trade-off is that in Singapore, you don't have access to, you know, free internet almost in a way. Like they regulate some of the stuff that you can see. So you're gonna need a VPN to like watch Netflix or anything like that over there. And and they have some weird rules, you know, chewing gum is illegal, stuff like yes. that, just because of, you know, littering and stuff. But but overall, when you start looking at it, it's like, well, they're pretty modern. They have great infrastructure. You know, there's good restaurants. It's really clean. There's 70 cents on the dollar. The Singapore dollar currently sits at 75 cents on the US dollar. You know, with the exchange rate too as well. So it's cheaper to live there. It's like, eh, you know, you're, you're in a different part of the world. So. Even, you know, I tell a lot of people just getting that one chance in your life to travel. And even if you are from the U.S., the U.S. is a big fucking place. We literally have different regions of the U.S. that are completely different. Minnesota, very, very different from Louisiana down south. So just getting whatever small, you know, like I said, getting out of your town, getting out of your city, getting out of your state. And I think it's important to always realize that back to my point, the world is bigger than just you or I. It's take the time to realize those experiences because you get a better worldview and you can look at situations and stories like, you know, what we're talking about and kind of have a better understanding of a global impact rather than just this solo impact. Yeah, for sure. And looking at, you know, like you said, to just traveling, even if you're in America and you just for whatever reason, you don't ever want to leave America and experience anything else. You just want to travel in America. Like you have all the different climate, re like we have all those different climates and all those different regions. And within all those is a different population. You know, Louisiana is very French and Creole, but you have LA is like mostly transplant. But then if you get into kind of the Pacific Northwest, you have kind of like this alternative i don't really want to call it a hippie movement but like you just have this alternative very in touch with kind of nature you know in, in portland and some of that's in san francisco too and, and some of that's in seattle but you also have a giant well, tech in all those there regions too. they're they're providing as well different cuisines mm -hmm. it's you know you get a very different cuisine in southern california uh, versus northern california versus louisiana versus maine versus minnesota versus you know washington state you're getting all these different cuisines in uh, one area and uh, you know kind of to the food discussion it's also important to try these new foods because i had a good talk with Felipe about this, but I grew up having, you know, not not to call it my parents too much, but not the greatest broccoli or cauliflower is like steamed and just, but then you go down south to Louisiana and they're throwing Cajun seasoning on everything and grilled fried broccoli is amazing. And I think that's also another important aspect of life is 
to expand your taste as well. Yeah. I mean, growing up as a kid, I didn't like any green vegetables. Like that was like, <laughs> I, I just, I, green beans, peas, broccoli, like none of that. I wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. I mean, my mom was pretty good home cook. I mean, she, she, you know, I grew up in the nineties, so it was, it, we didn't have a whole lot of restaurants around cause it was a small town too. So it was a lot of home cooking, you know, mm-hmm. so much of it. And I was talking to a, a chef a while ago, so much of your preferences depends on your first experience. So if you had broccoli that was just steamed and it was kind of soggy, you're probably like, no, I don't like it. I don't, I don't. And, and if you, and you would just never have it again, you would, every time you see it on the menu, you would just kind of write it off. And then, you know, maybe one day somehow you had it in a dish and you're like, whoa, this is really good. It's like, oh, that's broccoli. Like mm-hmm. that's the way it's kind of supposed <laughs> to be done. Yeah. Before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who help build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Ray, your charity of choice for today's episode is Colony Cats in Columbus. Do you mind explaining a bit about what they do and their significance of of providing awareness to cat overpopulation in Ohio. Yeah. So, I mean, when you asked me about the charity thing, I was like, I don't know which one to pick, you know. I picked Colony Cats just because, you know, there's somebody that I got in contact with when I found our cat who was basically abandoned. You know, we had no intentions of keeping our cat. We were basically trying to find a foster home for him. I called basically every different shelter I could find. Most of them didn't get back to me. A couple that did were kind of rude about it. One wanted me to pay them to take the cat, <laughs> which I thought was really confusing. And, and Colony Cats is just kind of the one that was, you know, one of the ones that was more helpful. Um, they do a bunch of different stuff at pet stores trying to, you know, get cats adopted and everything like that. There's definitely a, a weird stray cat odd kind of situation here in Columbus. It's yeah, I, I was reading ever, about it and I was like, this is very interesting. I, I did not need to go down this rabbit yeah. hole. Yeah. <laughs> so, so thank you for bringing me down that cat rabbit yeah, hole. No problem. So yeah, I mean, any, you know, any support that you can give that organization, you know, they, they do a really good job with bringing in stray cats and, and finding them foster homes. A lot of the vets and stuff, vet technicians and stuff are all kind of like these foster people too as well, where they'll have like six, seven cats at a time that they're fostering too, you know. That's how, you know, I kind of learned about that situation from our vet um, when we brought, you know, the cat that we found to to get him checked out, make sure there was nothing wrong with him. So, yeah, I mean, it's a weird, weird issue in Columbus <laughs> is that we have a pretty large stray cat kind of population and cats being abandoned like all over the place. So, so yeah, I figured, you know, why not give them uh, some support, give them a shout out and hopefully, uh, you know, maybe they can use whatever this benefits them to, to hopefully, you know, find more homes for cats or more resources, anything that they need. So well, I appreciate you uh, bringing them on the show. Listeners, if you know any reason why there's so many cats in Columbus, let us know. Maybe Selena Kyle's there. She has her little base there. But uh, Ray, are you ready to jump into our final news story? Talk about greenhouse gases, cows, burgers, McDonald's. Yeah, let's do it. This is from The Guardian Opinion, November 18th, 2020. Laugh if you want, but the McPlant Burger is a step to a greener world. When McDonald's announced its plans to launch a plant-based burger in late 2020, Twitter users were quick to mock the product's unimaginative name. 
the McPlant Burger. But as promised, in case you didn't know, Ray, I promise all my listeners now a reminder that only 3% of the world actively uses Twitter on the daily, and thus Twitter should not be seen as the voice of the people. But no matter what you think of the fast food chain's marketing department, the McPlant actually represents a milestone for plant-based protein products. While other chains such as Burger King and the Impossible Burger have already launched plant-based meat items, the impact of the planet's most popular fast food chain, this blew my mind, which sells 75 hamburgers every second, could be decisive in allowing plant-based meat alternatives to catch up in the mainstream. Simply put, the more accessible meat alternatives are, the better. Humans are in need of changing the way we consume and produce food to ensure a sustainable future. As of now, the global population is growing towards an estimated 9.7 billion people by 2050, and worldwide meat consumption is on the rise. The UN Food and Agricultural Organization estimates that livestock farming accounts for 14.5% of humanity's annual worldwide greenhouse gas emissions, but other experts have calculated that the industry's impact may be even higher. Uh, just a fact, the largest greenhouse gas offenders continues to be the burning of fossil fuels for energy at 76%. It is interesting to note that land use, which includes agriculture and deforestation and obviously uh, land for animals, accounts for 24% of emissions, but it is offset by about 20% by carbon removal done by biomass of minerals and such, dead organic material, and soil. They don't talk about that uh, enough. Beef is a particular climate offender, requiring 28 times more land, 6 times more fertilizer, and 11 times more water to produce than any other popular animal protein like chicken or pork due to cows needing much longer to grow to slaughter, which is about 18 months, and reproduce, which is about 283 days on average. Plant-based meat alternatives are a relatively new product category. Most of what we know about their sustainability comes from studies funded by themselves, as I mentioned, such as a 2018 research paper from the University of Michigan that found that manufacturing pea protein based beyond meat creates 90% less greenhouse gas emissions than traditional beef burger patties. Once again, Beyond Meat funded this study, and for transparency, McDonald's McPlant Burger is being developed by Beyond Meat. This is not to suggest they're the be-all end-all to eco-friendly eating. More independent research in their sustainability is needed. Nonetheless, plant-based burgers are certainly greener and more humane than industrial farm beef. Even without committing fully to a plant-based diet, simply choosing to eat less meat in our day-to-day lives can make an appreciable impact on the environment. A 2019 study published in Scientific Reports determined that if everyone in the U.S. on average reduced our consumption of beef, pork, and poultry by a quarter in favor of plant proteins, the country would emit 82 million metric tons fewer greenhouse gases annually. Uh, just for comparison, 82 million metric tons of greenhouse gases would be comparable to taking about 18 million passenger cars off the roads or charging about 10 million smartphones. And once again, to all our Fox News viewers, Joe Biden is not trying to take away your hamburger. As Fast Company's Adele Peters points out, McDonald's has historically been terrible from a sustainability point of view. Precious forests have been destroyed for its livestock crops, cattle ranchers, and palm oil suppliers. Its suppliers are major, major polluters of U.S. waterways, and to date, it has created unfathomable waste. In 2018, however, McDonald's set science-based targets to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions 36% by 2030. So far, even with the demand for plant-based proteins growing year by year, the plant-based protein market is still relatively niche. Perhaps McDonald's will be the one to finally supersize it. So Ray, just first off, have you had the opportunity to try a plant-based or lab-grown uh, meat burger? Yeah, I've had the uh, Impossible Whopper. From and, uh, Burger King. Uh, that's Burger King. Yep. I, I haven't had that I know of any Beyond Meat. I know the big complaint with Beyond Meat is the texture. It's a little bit mushy. The Impossible Burger, though... It tastes pretty much like a Whopper. 
Like you really don't know the difference. The the, the Impossible Burger is the burger I had, and I know. Um, I want to say ham h e m e is what makes it taste like meat. It's what's in our blood, but it, it comes specifically from soybeans. That's why they use soybeans so much. But heme is the thing that makes the Impossible Burger taste like meat, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, it, it tastes relatively. I mean, you can obviously tell in a side to side comparison by taste that these are two different products, but it doesn't taste horrible. You would only notice the difference side by side, or if you're somebody who ate Whoppers like really frequently. But if you haven't had a Whopper in like six months and somebody gave that to you and they're like, yeah, here you go. And they're like, oh yeah, by the way, that's the, that's the impossible, you know, the impossible Whopper. You wouldn't know until after you, you know, until someone told you like, it's that close. Like it's really impressive what they did with that. I, I was pretty blown away when I, when I tried it, I was like, I can't believe this is that close. Can we talk about the McPlant? That's a terrible name. Why are they calling it the McPlant? Like, why wouldn't you just call it um, oh, man. the Beyond Whopper or Whopper Beyond? Like Whopper Beyond, Beyond Mac, sounds, the Beyond or, Mac. Yeah, yeah. So like uh, Big Mac Beyond. That sounds Ooh, that's that sounds so like futuristic. Like you know, that's a good name for. A, why are you calling it the McPlant? I'm a, I'm a, I'm cutting that out, and we're taking this pitch to McDonald's. <laughs> but yeah, no, McPlant is it's you know, it, like I said, at least it's not McPlant face McPlant burger. Um, <laughs> but McPlant, it's not creative. I mean, this is a billion, multi-billion, probably a trillion dollar company. McDonald's is a 175 billion dollar company that has the resources to come up with a better name. But I 100% agree on the McPlant. In this case, Twitter was right. Yeah, that's it's such a bad name. Just anything else would probably be better. But it, it's weird because, you know, they talk in the article so much about, you know, greenhouse gases and stuff that comes from, from the cattle industry. But so much of that is because of most cattle farmers feed their, their cows primarily corn feed Mm -hmm. and we prop up the corn industry with all these subsidies when i mean numerous studies have shown that if you feed the cows either seaweed or algae like the amount of you know methane output just drops significantly and algae is something that you can grow i know in more south american countries they do um rotating pasteurizing Mm -hmm. because that's one of the reasons in the u.s we only have these areas where we can't grow crops because of so much pasteurizing and uh, stuff of that nature but in south america countries they tend to be able to rotate that pasteurizing better and it's better for the methane production it's a a decrease yeah like surprisingly one of the biggest uh exporters of cattle is uruguay Uh, or no paraguay sorry it's paraguay it's like the eighth biggest in the world or something like that you wouldn't think Paraguay exports 3.43% of the world's beef. Brazil tops the list at 23.5%, followed by Australia, the US, India, and Argentina to round out the top five. But they have a giant, basically, nature preserve. I mean, Paraguay is not that big of a, a populous country, anyways, a couple of big cities, but they have a giant, you know, nature preserve that is basically just a giant ranch and there's a whole bunch of different cattle farmers kind of use it. And like you said, they, they rotate everybody through um, to different pastures and, and different points. And that also helps with, you know, you don't have to mow it or anything like that. So that's not greenhouse gas because there's not like a whole bunch of electric mowers that are out there or anything like that. The area mentioned by Ray is the Gran Chaco region in Northern Paraguay. When you get into kind of the greenhouse gas stuff, it's really like every little bit helps. There's no one universal fix. You have to do a lot of little things to bring it down. Well, I mean, 
Okay, so this is like one of the points I I think I'm most stringent on is there is an overarching fix. You know, a hundred companies produce. 70% of, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and fossil fuel emissions. And so I think there is a fix there to holding these big companies responsible. You know, someone like China, who has 30% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and uh, fossil fuel emissions, America's 15, India's 7, Russia's 5. I 100% agree. I don't think there's this one fix. We just like stop eating meat and we save the earth. But I think there are these big contributors to something like climate change that we can hold more responsible. Absolutely you can definitely hold these bigger companies, these bigger countries too as well, the ones that are the, the frequent contributors to greenhouse gases. Like obviously, there's more that everybody can do. I mean, from – did you ever see – there's a show, I think it's on uh, Netflix. It was like Zac Efron did this travel show. Yes. And it's actually pretty good to be honest. The name of Zac Efron's travel show is Down to Earth with host Zac Efron. He went to – I think I think it was, I don't know if it's Iceland or, or it's somewhere yes, it's in Iceland that region. Iceland with the plants. Yes. The, and yeah. The and they plants. had the, the, they were pulling the carbon out and then putting it back in the ground and everything. Mm-hmm. Like you have stuff like that. I mean, obviously wind, solar, energy. I think you have that guy out of, is it like Norway? He was doing the, trying to convert wave energy into electricity. Okay. It's like a giant buoy system. The Norwegian is in Gabaka, the founder of the Norwegian Wave Energy Company, Waveco. But there's there's a lot of people that are kind of involved in it. And the overarching theme is less oil, more wind, more solar, yes. electricity, because it's renewable. That's going to make Get a giant nuclear difference. in there. I'll say it. Get nuclear in there. I'm a nuclear believer, but oil is a finite resource. We're eventually going to run out. I, some estimates say by 2030. I think that's a, a little uh, dramatic. The general rough consensus is that without newfound sources of oil, we will run out by 2050, 2060. But as legendary geologist M.K. Hubbard can attest to, those numbers uh, do end up fluctuating wildly. But we're eventually going to run out of oil and we need to have other options because no one's going to stop using their phone. No one's going to stop using electricity. We need to heat homes. I can't live in Minnesota in the middle of winter and not have heat in my home. I mean, I could get a fire going, but I'm just not I'm I'm not a, I'm not a survivor like that. I can chop down. I can probably chop down a tree and get firewood. I, I, I won't uh, short myself on that. But there's important things that we need energy and we need something to provide that energy. And if we have a finite resource that's going to run out, we need to come up with other resource opportunities that are going to be sustainable long into the future. Yeah. There's no such thing as clean coal. Like that's just a marketing term. Like that's not a thing. Fracking is just a temporary bridge and it's not good, but a temporary bridge between basically oil and electricity. The hydrogen thing is never going to go anywhere. We've already proven that with the hydrogen cars that everybody developed. Like it's 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 electric. It's like that's where you need to go. Mm-hmm. The only issue like with electricity, at least from like the electric car standpoint, is that I would be all for like next car getting an electric car. The problem is that I like for myself, I live in an apartment complex mm-hmm. and we don't have you need charging ports. We don't have a charging port. Somebody needs to basically start sticking an electric quote unquote gas station on electric station or whatever, right next to basically every gas station, all the major freeways. And then I think that will also help, you know, a lot of people get into, you know, electric cars and stuff like that. Cause they're all coming out. There's a bunch of companies in Detroit that are making them that are all getting ready to come out in the next year or two Mm -hmm. um, with their kind of first versions and everything like that. And then you have obviously Chevy and Tesla and stuff, but in order to get more people, I think 
they have to feel like it's convenient for them. Well, and, and it has to be affordable. And this can kind of round back into meat. But going green has to be affordable for people to do it. Like, I, I'm an Aldi shopper. I love Aldi's. I don't know if they have Aldi's in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got them. Oh, awesome. But I'm an Aldi shopper. I go in and I see, I love grapes. Throw some grapes in the freezer, people. It's a delicious treat. Um, but I go in and get grapes. But I can also get meat for much cheaper than those grapes. And then we start talking about, you know, lower income families trying to decide, am I going to pay eggs, for example, free range eggs are about $4 at all these mass produced eggs are about 95 cents. So let's just round up to a dollar. Am I really going to pay $3 more for eggs for free range eggs when I could spend that money paying for, like I said, heat, paying for a a car, paying for insurance, stuff of that nature? I think, let me look. The price of lab grown meat uh, is about $50 per pound. Uh, it used to be insanely expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the price of plant based protein is about $14 per pound. A recent Target price check says the price per pound of plant based meat is about $8 to $10. And the price of beef is uh, about $4 per pound. To really make you know something like plant based protein meat alternatives viable, they need to be comparable in price to that three, four dollars per pound for meat. Otherwise, no one's going to pay ten dollars more to save the earth. People that are struggling to get by don't give a shit about the earth. They're just saying, how do I get to tomorrow? How do I survive today? Yeah, it's about economies of scale. And basically, that's kind of the one benefit of, you know, McDonald's or Burger King or whoever kind of... It's great that they're doing that because they're the ones who have the most reach. They have the name recognition that people, you know, they have a bunch of money, bunch of capital that they can invest in all this stuff. Mm-hmm. The one downside to this though is that most likely because of their stature and all their capital, they're going to wind up controlling a really really big chunk of the market whenever it does catch on. Yes. And because they're early, you know, it's like is it going to be beyond meat by McDonald's instead of just beyond meat? But the alternative to that is, I mean, they are working on like lab grown, you know, meat that they take basically real meat cells and and they culture it and they grow it and everything. And and that's, but like you said, you have to get the cost down to the point where you have to get it at least to the point where it's, I can either get, you know, a a Whopper for five bucks or a McPlant for five bucks. Or maybe even you have to get it to a Whopper for five bucks and a McPlant for like 450 or four bucks. I think I think it has to be lower. I I, I honestly I think, so too, think yeah. for people to invest in greener products, it has to be cheaper than what's already on the market. Yeah, because like in there's a weird part of the the green movement too as well is that it is kind of this, and I know this is a big thing. I, I think it's mainly big city focus, but like it's a social status yes. almost kind of like in in L.A. and in New York, it's like. Oh, well, no, no, no. I mean, I, I drive my Tesla and, you know, I have this whole rainwater. So it's like, yeah, well, cool. You, you can you afford know, make, to have those You make a million dollars a year. You can have a $50,000 rainwater system installed. Like that's not the average American <laughs> who is living, you know, the average American lives check to check. I think the average person has, I forget what they say in debt. It's, it's like over 10 grand, I think. The average amount of debt per American is $38,000. And this is without a mortgage included. Like in debt, yeah, and like less than a thousand dollars in their bank account right now. Yeah, like most people under the age of thirty have like no savings. So you can kind of trace it, unfortunately, all to like income inequality, which is a whole bigger thing too. But but yeah, until you get the price down on this stuff, uh, it's just not going to be widely popularized. And people are always going to eat meat. Uh, I, I'm definitely in in the 
camp that, you know, we don't need to be eating as much meat as we are eating, but we're a growing society. The population is growing. I think, you know, since the 1960s, population growth has become linear because, you know, we have things like starvation, education, debt, climate change, etc. And I don't know if you've heard of this uh, Swedish uh, statistician named Hans Rosling, but he talks about this idea that the world population will never reach more than 11 billion people. But the basic idea is that in developed nations, a two-parent household on average has two kids, and that seems to be pretty stagnant throughout the years. And underdeveloped nations are slowly getting to that number, slowly getting to that stagnation of a two-couple or a two-person household, a parent household with two individuals having two kids. And so once we get that, you're always just replacing the person. You're always just replacing your parents, basically. I forgot to add that additional 1 billion would come from advances in medical technology and science that would allow humans to live slightly longer than the current life expectancy. If this is a concept you're interested in, I highly recommend the six-part lecture done by Hans Rosling through the thinkglobalschool.org if this is, like I said, if this is a concept that does sound interesting to you. Um, yeah, and, and there's a ton more about it, but... The basic idea is that we're never going to go past 11 billion individuals unless we unlock, um, oh my gosh, what's the thing where you can't die? Um, not immunity. Immortality. That's Immortality. <laughs> I knew it started yes. with an eye. Uh, but I don't think the rate of meat consumption is going to increase at a rate that we need to have like insanely drastic changes in, in, in how we see the world in regards to, you know, the Catholics, quote unquote, Catholics definition of meat, because I truly, I was reading the study where it, they talked about how most of the population coming in the future will be steered towards places like Africa and Asia, Asia specifically, I know Asia is a big area, Africa is big too, uh, but specifically India and China. And most of their diet consists of fish fruit and grain. So kind of the overarching diet of humanity will change. Uh, not so much cows and lambs that we eat here in the US, uh, South America and Europe. Australia and New Zealand are in the higher ranking consumers of beef as well. You know, I think we can have a whole totally different conversation about the environmental impact of you know, fishing and overfishing and uh, uh, fruits and the transportation of fruits and fruits can only be in certain seasons and stuff of that nature. But staying to, staying to meat, India, you know, one of the bigger growing populations in Asia has a very different view of cows than we do here in the, uh, uh, in the US. The Muslim community has a very different view of cows than we do. But I do think it is responsible for us as Americans to eat less meat. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that we should only eat maybe one to two burgers a week instead of the, I think we're eating like five to seven burgers a week. Americans actually eat on average three burgers a week. It's insane. I 100% agree. You know, I think we have to be careful with companies like uh, McDonald's and Burger King leading the charge. But it, it sucks to say it, but a lot of things don't necessarily change when smaller companies do it. If a smaller company changes their menu to be more health conscious, to be more plant-based, protein conscious, people are going to be like, oh, that's a cool little niche restaurant we can go to on Saturdays. But when a big-ass company like McDonald's, like Burger King, like Walmart, like Amazon perpetuates this switch... Things start to change. Yeah, I mean, you definitely need them involved with the fit. Like, we we definitely eat more meat than you know everybody else, or really close to it, anyways. But the problem 
Fish isn't the answer because they're running out of fish. And I don't know what those countries yes. are going to do when they run out of fish. You can farm raise it as much as you want, you know, open farm it in, in the ocean or whatever, but they're still going to run out of fish. And there's so many major, major, major cities that are on the coast. If you look at just, just pull up a map and just kind of scroll and you'll see, you know, bunch of population in India is right on the coast. Africa, they all go out miles into the ocean to fish. Mm-hmm. And it's they have to keep going farther and farther out, farther and farther out. And eventually it's going to be too far that they can't go or they're going to have to hire some sort of, you know, corporate overlord to go way out for them or whatever, and that'll probably lead to a whole other subset of problems. But so fish isn't the answer. Plants, you know, fruits, vegetables like you're saying, I mean, there there are issues with that. I want to know whatever happened. I don't know if you've ever remember seeing this as a kid, maybe, but like Discovery Channel or whatever, they would always have kind of like these futuristic episodes. And the one that I remember the most was like the the vertical farming, like the skyscraper greenhouse thing yeah. that they always wanted yeah. to do. What happened to that proposal? Like, can we do that? Can we start <laughs> making those? Like so we can so we can have fruits it's and not vegetables. A, it's not- Corporations don't make tons of money doing it. It would they would lose profits doing it and they don't want to do it because of that. Because if we can sustain ourselves, why would we go to McDonald's? If I can grow all my own food, why would I need to go to the grocery store? Why would I need a, you know, a food supply system? Yeah, I mean just it's just not everybody's going to be able to to do that. So you're basically hoping, you know, eventually somebody somebody who's running one of these big corporations I don't know. They wind up being like the Grinch and like their heart grows 10 times. And they're like, all right, I'll do this one charity project Hopefully. or something to benefit. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really tough because you look at all the different, you know, problems and there's no, there's just really no like one fix. It's definitely like you have to do multiples of things and trying to get big corporations to do stuff. It's like, they're all profit-based. You know, how much can you trust them? I mean, there is, unfortunately... There is like a theory that basically eventually we're all going to be pushed into each city is going to basically be owned by like a company. You'll be admitted into the city based on your, you know, what you've posted on social media and your credit score and all this different stuff, these attributes. But the the city would basically be autonomous. So it'd be self-driving cars and, you know, food and everything would be provided. But but you almost have to like apply to, you know, for like membership in a, in a city. It's really wild stuff. If you ever want to go down that rabbit hole, there's a, it, it, it all kind of stems from like the Deutsche Bank stuff. But because um, that's what like these really, really rich bankers do is they sit around and talk about how can we monopolize more stuff. When you start looking at like the big picture stuff, it's it, it does feel a little bleak at, at times. So I don't have the answers. I, I don't I, I think plant based, you know, food and, and stuff like that is definitely I definitely a good step in the right direction. I think it can only benefit more people getting sugars out of, you know, people's diets and too as well is, is another huge thing and people eating healthier. That kind of all ties into the coronavirus, you know, if there was some studies that basically, you know, the healthier that you were, you know, the less likely you were, you know, going to be super affected by it too as well. So, it all kind of ties into one another and it's it's yeah, there's a lot of different A lot of different issues. (laughs) Well, no. And I mean, even to, you know, COVID-19, I mean, the fact that that happened is we're encroaching on these animals uh, environments because we need more space for more people and more food production. And, you know, there is an option here to kind of 
quell this, but as you said, there's so many different routes you need to take. And you know, I'm a big proponent that the first step you need to take is just making it cheaper. You know, I know uh, Biden just released his uh, American Job and American Families Plan, but nothing was mentioned in regards to uh, plant-based protein industry. He did mention expanding uh, a free school lunch, which I think is a no-brainer. No kids should have to suffer because their parents can't afford a lunch. But you do do you think that's something that you know our the U.S. government should be funding? Is this plant-based protein research, lab-grown meat research. Uh, uh, right now, they fund animal meat. It's $1 per slaughtered cow about. Do you think that's a, a, an op- option? Yeah. If you slap uh, you know, like a U.S. Army sticker on it, they'll definitely fund it. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, Make it about could, the military and they're in. Billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. Well, well that's honestly, I say that jokingly, but that is an avenue to get the, the government to adopt it is if you... If you could get somebody to say, look, and granted, like warfare is going away from like ground troops and stuff like that more and more, but there are still going to be places that you have to have ground troops. If you could make a compelling argument that we can feed all the troops in this area, all the military personnel here, 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 more effectively, you know, they'd be healthier, they would be less depressed, they would be whatever, you know, all the different stuff that you're you worry about with military personnel, whether it's their mental health, their physical health, if you could kind of tie it all into like and prove that this using, you know, plant-based meat would be better for them, you could get the government to fund it. <laughs> like you could. No, no. I, I mean, you're, you're a hundred percent true. And that is such a fucked up situation that that <laughs> is a, a fact that if we get somehow tied to the military, we will get bipartisan support across the board. And you would get a blank check. Yeah. They'd be like, yeah, how many labs do you want to build? 75? Sure. <laughs> like they, you know, every city needs a major lab. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, that would obviously help bring down the cost of things. And yeah, it's in general, we, we just as uh, people need to eat less meat and eat healthier, eat more um, vegetables, eat more fruits, eat more healthier grains, you know, eat more fish when fish are available. I think the, what the Mediterranean diet is one of the healthiest diets in the world. Yeah, but mainly the the blue zones. Okay. There's a, it's like three or four different parts of the world. There's one in Italy and there's one in Japan, but they're called the blue zones. And it's basically the, the climate just mixes perfect with the dietary, like all these people live to be like over a hundred, but it's also to your point, like it's a lot of it is the Mediterranean, Mediterranean diet. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, if they're using oil, it's, it's olive oil and not, you know, corn based oil or, or anything like that too. So, and it's fish, but it's nuts and it's fruits and it's vegetables and it's leafy greens and all this stuff. And and they wind up living it to be, you know, over a hundred, like a, good chunk like it's something ridiculous like 40 percent or something like that yeah i think the the average life expectancy of humans is like in the later 60s and i think japan is number one at 83 years old yeah which like even you know japan and you know more of those asian countries they have you know incredibly healthy outlooks on life you know maybe not you know work life there in over in korea but you know just changing a diet is such a huge thing. You know, I mentioned that, you know, I was lactose intolerant. I have also have, you know, a, a slight gluten sensitivity, you know, I was eating these foods and my mind was cloudy. I was lethargic. You know, I didn't have any energy, any mental energy. And then once I changed that diet around, I started eating healthier foods. I went from not being able to do anything for an entire week to now doing tons of shit. It, it's so important to have that healthy, you know, start. And that's why I'm all for 
school lunches being completely free. I will pay $100 more in taxes a year if kids in K through 12 can get free lunches because that's a, a, a fantastic start just to have a nutritional balanced meal at least once a day completely changes an outlook of a kid's life. Those stories are always just so mind-blowing when you see like, you know, school in Pennsylvania expels or suspends kid because of unpaid like lunch balance. Mm -hmm. It's just like, what? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know in your schools, but if you couldn't pay a lunch balance in a few of the schools I went to, you got got your lunch first off taken away from you in line because that's not embarrassing. And then you were giving a cheese sandwich and some carrots and a milk. And that was it. And it's like, that's wild. are we seriously, is this what we're feeding our kids? And then we're wondering why they have issues later in life. I mean, come I on. Don't, I don't remember that. I just remember, I remember they would always like kind of chase down. I, I just never really knew what happened to people who had like the outstanding balance. I remember that they always like remind people and I think they would send home like a, a note or something like that. But I don't remember anything past that. So it was always kind of wild to me when you hear these stories about like, yeah, well, we just took the kids lunch away. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I I mean that that's a whole other thing. Like you know, I grew up in, in Massachusetts, and then I moved to Ohio about like halfway through high school. So it was wild to me when I came to Ohio. It was like you had to pay for a lot of school supplies just in general, yeah. and that was wild to me because in Massachusetts everything was covered because. And I know there's a population disparity, but everybody like always like craps on Massachusetts for being like the super high tax, you know, state, which it really actually isn't if you actually look at the data, but everything was covered by like property tax. So they do basically take the property tax and that was how they funded like all the schools where here in Ohio, the school system has been deemed unconstitutional like three times. And it's just <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. And like you have teachers that like that pay for like a bunch of supplies and stuff out of their own pocket and they get some money from the state, but it it only targets like certain supplies and they only get like a percentage of it and stuff back. And it's, it's really strange. And it's like, why would you want to be a teacher in Ohio then? Like, why would you should just move to a state that actually funds the school system. And then that leads to lack of teachers and lack of education in that state. And it all goes downhill. Yeah. And I know, I know there's issues, you know, with like teachers unions and uh, teachers unions being a lot more, having a lot more power in the Midwest and, you know, uh, all the way back to farm schools and religious churches and their specific schools. And it's another one, just like your cats in Columbus there. It's another rabbit hole to get into that. Uh, another episode. Uh, Ray, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to give Ray's podcast Spoon Mob a listen, you can do so by following him on Instagram and Facebook at Spoon Mob. Once again, on Instagram and Facebook at Spoon Mob. Or to get the whole wide selection of choices, you can head to his website, www.spoonmob.com. And then, of course, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. All right, Ray, before we head off into the sunset, Ray, I'm going to steal a tiny segment from your show and ask, what is the guilty pleasure food and drink? So it's either going to be peanut butter M&Ms, which are ter- terrible for you. You shouldn't eat them. <laughs> or I am a sucker for a chicken McNugget. Those are like the two things probably food wise, drink wise, super big into uh, champagne. Uh, I got into that. Oh, like, fancy. Uh, see, that's that's the problem. Everybody assumes <laughs> that it's fancy, and it's I don't know. It's um, <laughs> is you it can find a lot as of, fancy as I think it is. Every well, the I mean, they've done really good marketing the champagne industry because like everybody associates that with like celebration event, mm-hmm. you know, 
upscale all this stuff. But but you can find a lot of good champagnes that are that are in the lower tier. You know, they're still pricier. I think the average like bottle of wine sells for under twenty bucks. So like champagne. What is champagne? How is champagne made? It, it's it- I, they have their own kind of processes. You know, depending on if it's vintage or not vintage, and they blend it. So like you'll have. The low end stuff, which is usually just like a, a brute, which is just kind of a normal champagne. And what they'll do is they'll take wines that they've made from years past and they'll blend them together to get the same profile. And they try and keep that profile consistent for that non-vintage one. Then you can get into the crazy stuff, which is like the vintage stuff, which is it's super delicious, but it's like basically like wine. So you'll get like a 2012, you know, that's uh, they call it Blanc de Blanc, which is basically white wine made with white grapes. Because okay. some rosés are made with a combination of white and uh, purple grapes, but some are just white wines that are left on the skin of the purple grapes to give it that color. There's even some that they take white wine and they the white sparkling wine, and then they just dump in red wine to give it the color too as well. So there's a whole bunch of different stuff. I got really super into it, went down just a bunch <laughs> of rabbit holes, but but you can find decent bottles of champagne for like 30, 30, 40 bucks. Okay. So it's not everything's like $300 like everybody assumes. <laughs> I my my guilty pleasure food and saying this being lactose intolerant is literally a corn tortilla, putting some uh, uh cheddar cheese on it putting it in the oven for like five minutes and just doing like a cheese roll up. Like, I don't know why they're so freaking addicting. And then wine, I've been, wine is my kind of go-to. Like I've been really during the last year of the pandemic, I've been really into like wine pairing and uh, really get into that, making my own wine. I'm looking forward to the dandelions. Fun fact for people who like to make dandelion wine, wait until like the second batch of dandelions because the bees, they need those dandelions to feed themselves after uh, hibernation. Uh, so a little fun fact there about bees and dandelions. But yeah, love love wine. Wine's been the new thing for me. Nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been to Minis- you know, Minneapolis. It's definitely a place I want to go to. They have a good food scene there. There's a lot of cool restaurants, even with losing some over the pandemic. So um, definitely looking forward to getting up there in the in the summer months. I don't really plan on coming if, up there. If you, in you the have a chance uh, or even interview a chef, I highly recommend Brian Ingram of The Gnome here uh, in Minnesota. He did a lot okay. of amazing, absolutely amazing things during the pandemic to help the community. Uh, amazing person just in general. So I highly recommend him for an interview. Okay, cool. Yeah, for uh, sure. All right. As always, thanks to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Ray, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just trying to have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. Ray, it is now to my favorite portion of the show where I hand off the show to you to close it however you see fit. So Ray, the floor is yours. Yeah, it's just, you know, if you're into food, uh, check out spoonmob.com, follow us on Instagram and, uh, you know, check out the podcast, but eat at your local restaurants. Don't get delivery through apps <laughs> and uh, try and eat better and if you drink a bunch, try and mix in some workouts to keep those calories off. That's all I got for you. <laughs> and try some good champagne. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, Ray, uh, very much appreciate this conversation. Uh, I'll definitely have to have you back on to talk about, I feel like we have uh, about a million more things we need to talk about. I don't want to make this episode 10 hours long, but uh, I appreciate you being on the episode. I appreciate you doing this, spending the time. So thank you for that. No, this is awesome. A lot of fun. So yeah, anytime uh, you, know, you need a guest on short notice or whatever, just hit me up. Definitely open to coming back on. Until next time, listeners, 
Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Please enjoy a short clip from Ray's podcast, Spoon Mob. And then last question, uh, what's your favorite Anthony Bourdain episode, moment, scene? Oh, that's a, that's a story too. So I once got cut out. Out of I once got cut out of uh, the layover. Which episode? San Francisco episode, where we go to Mr. Bing's and uh, Comstock and uh, Sam's. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. It goes to the the that's the all night burger place. Yeah, burger and pizza place. Yeah. Yeah, right, Sam's, which is next to like my all night place. It's now closed. It's called Vietnam. Yeah, because he's he's drunk as shit <laughs> during that old time. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's drunk as fuck. Yeah. Yeah, because we were wrecking fucking chartreuse and fernet at fucking Mr. Bing. So were you were you at the end of the bar or where were I was at so so Jeff and Johnny, the dudes who own Comstock, were at Absinthe before. I knew them from Absinthe because one of my partners in crime was the CDC at Absinthe before we worked together. So I was like Comstock was like my local. Comstock and Romola were like my locals because they're both in North Beach. Uh, and obviously Park Chavez is in North Beach. So we went over, Jen and I went to go get a drink. And her, she met her husband there and her husband was like, there's like camera crews here. This is stupid. We're leaving. And I was like, well, like my whole night was like, like we're off tomorrow. And I was planning on like drinking a bunch of, they serve whiskey shots in little cowboy boots. They're glass. So that's like a Comstock thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I'm gonna go drink a couple of boots and like drink a couple of anchor steams and get fucking drunk. Like I don't care what's going on over there or whatever. So we're over there and I walk in and Jeff's Hollinger is being interviewed and Johnny's at the end of the bar. And it's like this whole thing. And I'm just very much just like, could I fucking get beers, please? Like, I understand because I didn't know it was Tony. You know what I mean? I didn't really know who it was. Yeah. So during the interview, Jeff's like, Jeff comes out at the end of the bar and he's like, yo, we're going to go to my office. We used to call him Mr. Bing's Jeff's office. Jeff would be like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, gonna to go. I'm going to go over to my office. Right. And it was Mr. Bing's, which was a little Chinese owned bar next door where we played like liar's dice for shots. And if you won, you got a free shot. If you lost, you pay double for the shot. Like, one of those, you know what I mean? Like one of those kind of places, right? Yeah, yeah. So we go over to Mr. Bing's and I was already half hammered and they're over there talking and I'm like in a couple of scenes and I was particularly and predictably pretty vulgar. Not like, not like misogynistically vulgar, but like, you know, every other word was fuck and asshole and bitch and, you know, I'm drunken in my 20s and whatever. And I, and they, and they were, and then like Danny Bowen shows up and they're going to go to Vietnam and Danny Bowen and I, whether he remembers this or not, that motherfucker, we always fought over the same table at Vietnam because we always got there around the same time. And there were times that he would walk in and me and my people would be at the table in the back of Vietnam, or I would walk in and he and his people would be at the same table in the back of Vietnam. And I would always be like, Oh, Danny Bowen got my fucking table. Um, and I hope he felt the same way about when I had his table. <laughs> uh, but they're talking about like going to Vietnam and I, I, I didn't do this. I don't think that I, I don't think that I had my, had my thumb on the scale at all. But I just remember a conversation being like, dude, like once this goes on TV, we're never going to be able to get a fucking table at Vietnam. Like ever. Cause like everyone's just going to go to fucking Vietnam and we're never going to be able to eat. And the thing about Vietnam was it was open till 4am. It was a faux joint. It was a, it was a Vietnamese faux joint and it was open till like 4am and they'd serve you like Ching Tao in like plastic red cups until 4am. Like they had like a, like, um, a Hillary Duff like pink phone and that was like the house phone and it was like maybe like 12 seats uh it was a great great place since closed 
Um, so they decided to go to Sam's and, 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 and all that kind of happened. And I remember being in it and there's cameras and Tony and I are talking and shooting the shit. We do a shot of short truth together, Jeff and, and I, and, and Tony do a shot of Burnett together, whatever. So I remember being in it. We get the air date. I invite all my friends over to my fucking like two bedroom apartment in Knob Hill that I paid way too much money for. And I'm like, yo, I'm on TV. I'm on TV. I'm with Tony Bourdain. This is a big deal. We're all going to watch this. My shit's going to change. Thing, you know what I mean? Like, I'm for sure on it, right? <laughs> yeah. We say side thing. We're all there. It gets to the point. And he goes to like, you know, I forget where he goes. I think, I think he goes to um, like Swan Oyster Depot with Roland Passeau. Uh I, I don't remember what he does. Right? He goes like, like all these places. They go to the like, Tonga Room, I think. Tonga Room, yeah. He, him and Constantino go to Tonga Room, I think. Right, yeah, for sure. Uh, and, then, and then it comes to like the part where I'm like, oh, here I am. Here I am. And there are just like a series of like hard cuts. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no way. And my friends are like, oh, yeah, Spinner, you did fucking great. You were definitely in that episode. I'm so glad we're here watching you. Yeah, you did super great. Why are we here again? I'm like, you guys, I swear to God I was in it. I swear to <laughs> God I was in that thing. So that to this day is, is very much my, it's, it's hard for me to, to watch that episode without getting a little teary eyed. Uh, just obviously like in in you know what i mean in 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 post tony hanging himself yeah uh, but that's very very easily my favorite my favorite episode that's that's awesome story 